Hi everyone, welcome to the World Explorers Podcast, a kid-friendly space where experts gather to inspire and equip families, communities, and better yet, the planet to have those tough, often taboo, timely conversations about life. At World Explorers, we encourage children to have a love for the planet and all its people. We are inviting you to be part of a village that values diversity, inclusion, empathy, and health and wellness so that you and your children can not only thrive, but prosper in an increasingly complex world. So sit back and buckle up as we set out to explore some rather tough talks that will give you the confidence you need to start a series of healthy conversations with your child today. This talk is dedicated to how to talk to our children about racism and privilege. My name is Kisha Edwards-Ganzi. I'm the co-founder of World Explorers Group, and I have two special guests who are joining me here tonight. I have Dr. Corey Emanuel and Dr. Annika Carlson, and, and both of them have a wealth of knowledge to share with us on this topic. We are so excited to be able to bring resources like this directly to you and your homes. I wish that things like this existed when I was a little girl and when we were all growing up. And now here we are as adults having these tough talks so that we can hopefully um, set our generation up for success in these areas. So I'm going to allow um, Dr. Corey Emanuel and Dr. Annika Carlson, if you could introduce yourselves. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Corey Emanuel. I'm a media psychologist. This is my second tough talk. Uh, I was with uh, World Explorers last month and it was a great conversation. So thank you so much for having me back. Basically, I work at the intersection of mass media and behavior, you know, really trying to understand patterns, um, observing the way that we interact with one another, um, perceptions, what we do with our perceptions um, through the mass media. Um, so I often will look at, you know, how does you know, adolescent boys playing video games. Is there any sort of relationship to school shootings because of that? You know, representation in TV and film, how does that help us form our identity? Um, social media, now that we were in this age of uh, being activists and advocates online, how does that impact our overall well-being? So really, I, I'm focused on all things race, uh, media consumption, mental health, you can usually find me somewhere uh, focused on any of those things. So thank you again for having me. You're welcome. And Dr. Annika Carlson. Um, that awesome. Yes, um, thank you for having me. And Dr. Emanuel, I feel like we have quite a bit of overlap in our research. So that was very exciting to hear as a first time meeting. Um, so my name is Dr. Annika Carlson, and I am an assistant professor and associate clinical director at Converse College. And I work in the marriage and family therapy department. So we have a new campus at the University Center Greenville. And um, my research really focuses on race, ethnicity, and representations in media also. But I take a specific focus on dialogue about race issues. Um, and that's really focused on within uh, white populations to see what kind of dialogue is occurring that is challenging racism and what kind of dialogue is occurring that is promoting racism. So um, in the therapy realm, I focus on a decolonial or anti-racist practices in therapy and clinical training. And as a therapist, I see people of all ages and I'm really thankful to be here um, and looking forward to this talk.
Hey, great, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it too. Um, Dr. Corey Emanuel. So as everyone knows by now, we are here tonight to talk about, you know, how do we talk to our kids and engage them on the conversation around race and racism. Um, I always like to begin my talks with, you know, really looking at the psychology, um, particularly as we talk about kids, adolescent development, when are certain things, when are certain conversations appropriate? Um, but I think for this conversation, it, it would do us just to talk a little bit about some of the misconceptions um, that may be around this quote unquote, the talk. Um, so what research shows us is that adults in the US um, believe that children should be at least five years old to discuss race. That's sort of a general consensus as, as they've done surveys. Um, but what we know doing some of the research is that some infants even are aware of race. Um, children as young as preschool have already developed some racist beliefs. Um, so really the, the main takeaway here is that delays in important conversations like the ones that, that we're having tonight um, really could make it difficult to change children's misconceptions or racist beliefs as they become older. So really what the work we're doing tonight, and I'm so happy that World Explorers is even starting this, this you know, dialogue between myself and Dr. Annika and parents um, because we, we have an opportunity you know, by having this conversation and, and really diving into it at the early early age. So with that being said, I thought it would do us well to sort of, let's look at the spectrum, right? Let's look at this, uh, you know, three months old, all the way going into elementary school to see when do certain beliefs and, and our perceptions really start to activate for our children. So again, this is all research-based. We know that as early as three months old, babies prefer faces from certain racial groups. Um, nine months old, mind you, we're not even at one years old yet. Um, babies, infants, they use race to categorize faces. Um, three years old, so now we're getting into toddler age, um, they often will associate some racial groups with negative traits. And then our four-year-olds, they're already sort of thrust into experiencing race-based discrimination, right? So again, this is how the spectrum uh, really covers what we see. So we know going back to this whole misconception about, oh, you know, let's wait till our kids are five years old to begin having these sort of serious, heavy conversations. We really are doing a disservice to our kids and really culture as a whole by not having these conversations early. Um, I wanted to share just a quick little clip so that you're not taking me at my word, but we can actually hear what some young folks have to say. And then I wanna sort of engage with a little bit as to what your takeaways is from what they had to share. As the nation watched in horror, millions of our children watched too. It made me feel sad. Why are they taking stuff? That's scared for a sec. We talked with kids seven to 14 years old to find out what they're thinking about what happened at the Capitol. Cousins, 14-year-old Kayla and 11-year-old Jaden. It was just violent. Kayla thinks the police response was unfair. I thought that the police might have acted a little bit different, like used more force if the people like had color or they were black. What was your first thought? I thought they were gonna come here and 
10-year-old Daphne was shocked because she toured the Capitol on a family vacation. And we had stood in the rotunda and seen the amazing artwork and kept our hands to ourselves and followed the rules. Seven-year-old Mila, did you understand why they were doing that? I did understand that they were mad, but they, but I still don't understand why they would do it. Psychologists urge parents and teachers to help kids talk about it. It's important to be honest, but talk to their age level. It is important for them to know that they are safe, to know that you care about what they think and how they feel. I wanted you to sort of see and hear real emotions, things that are coming up for kids that would be in the age group that we're speaking to today. So a couple of the young men share that they noticed that perhaps the people in the video that were actually leading the siege um, weren't being attacked. Um, and, and maybe it had something to do with their skin color, right? So you might be sitting, you know, being a part of this talk tonight and, and thinking, well, you know, I could see where that might be one racial group's fear, but, you know, my child, my family, that's not really a fear of ours. But what I'm inviting us to consider is they are at school and being, you know, part of a community with kids who do have these fears. So whether or not it might be impacting them directly or those fears might be directly instinctual to them, they are going to be affected by just sharing community with people or other kids who do have those fears. All right, so just some general do's and don'ts, right? We, we're here, to, here tonight to get some really practical tools um, to you know, help us, aid in us having these conversa conversations with our children. So here are just a couple of you know, general don'ts. General refusal. So what is this about? This is, you know, when we as parents and guardians just sort of dismiss uh, the fears, uh, some of the thoughts, the conversations that our children might try to bring to us around race, um, diverting to a safer topic, diluting or dismissing the importance of a topic, right? So we want to avoid that. The colorblind strategy, right? I do believe often with the colorblind strategy that you know, we just, we feel as though we've at, we're at this place where like race doesn't have this sort of grip on us in a way where there's vitriol or there's hatred, right? So in that thinking, we're like, well, skin color doesn't matter to me. That's not, that's not part of who I am as a person to judge somebody based on the color of their skin. But that's really not an effective strategy, right? Because even if we think about Dr. Martin Luther King, and when he spoke about, you know, not being judged by the color of our skin, he wasn't saying, don't look at my skin color. He was saying, don't judge me based on my skin color. And so we really want to sort of take off this notion of skin color doesn't matter. We're all the same. You know, we have a lot of similarities and that's beautiful. That's what keeps us connected. But we are different. And one of the ways in which we are different is based on our skin color, right? Um, a third don't is their versus our issue, right? Where we're speaking at it, we're kind of like, you know, looking at it from the outside, you know, looking in to be like, mm, doesn't really deal with me, doesn't really have much to do with me, so we're not going to go there. We really want to 
be active in everything that's happening around us. Because just like the example I shared with the kids in the video, that even if it's not directly happening to you, you're sharing community with people that it is happening with. Now, some do's, right? What, what can I do if I'm going to begin having these conversations? Practice what you're going to say. Um, I think it's, it's very helpful if you are already in the space where you are friends with people of different races that you trust and that you know you can be comfortable with run things by them that you want to talk to your kids about that's a great sort of safe way into the conversation being aware of your own biases um, children pay attention to our behavior you know it's less about words sometimes and more about the actions the way that you're showing up the way that you are sharing space with people of different races right um, and then of course ask your child how they feel you know, again, the video example that I led with tonight, you know, the, the children are often very honest about where they are, their fears, where they might have some anxiety, where they, they're experiencing stress. And you as a parent, as a guardian, you have the opportunity to model for them how to experience and sit with some of their fears and some of their anxiety. So asking them how they feel is a great way into the conversation. Just as a takeaway, you know, when children learn to talk about race and ethnicity constructively, they develop empathy for others. They learn about new perspectives and understand their own identity. As we're having these conversations, we want to be cognizant of the language we use and we want to make sure we're using terms that, you know, are culturally appropriate, right? So these are a few that often come up or that are very much sort of uh, part of our society um, right now. So Black or African-American are often used interchangeably. And so I just always like to point out, Black is a racial identifier. Whereas when we use African-American, that's um, attached or associated with the descendants of enslaved Africans um, born and raised in the United States. Whereas Black individuals can have a lived experience beyond the borders of the United States. So just knowing the nuances sometimes will we'll help with things like that. Um, when we talk about ethnicity, ethnic identity, we're talking about a person's knowledge of his or her membership in a social group. So more cultural, whereas with Black or African-American, we're talking about physical traits. And then BIPOC, another term you're probably hearing a lot or seeing a lot, um, stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Lastly, I'll say um, Hispanic, Latino, Latinx, these are other terms that are very uh, mainstream now. The Pew Center um, did some research and found that Hispanic is preferred by far. So you're gonna, you're gonna see that a lot, um, followed by Latino. Um, and then finally, um, a small share of people uh, do prefer the term Latinx, which is more gender neutral or non-binary term. So these are terms that you're probably going to see a lot. Your children may, be, may even be asking you about. So it's good to be familiar with these terms. So I want to add one more definition just as we're kind of talking about how to use appropriate terminology. Um, we want to recognize that the word Caucasian has some actually uh, racist roots because it was a term that thought that light-skinned people come from the Caucasus region and that um, it was a genetically superior group that come from the Caucasus region. And um, so continuing to use the word Caucasian just promotes that old stereotype that there was these different species. So we can, when we talk about white people, we can call them white people too. Um, and we can just move into that language and um, get with kind of what doesn't promote this biological idea of race as a category. Race meaning um, 
like a diff a whole different species. The term race means species. So when we talk about racism, oftentimes it has some really old, awful history that we want to reject. I love um, how Dr. Emanuel framed everything in terms of myths and then reality, because we don't get a lot of time to talk about what some of the myths are that we just kind of go along with. Um, and I love that, that there's never too young to start and that being a myth, oh, I have to wait till my child or a certain age. And specifically when it comes to talking to white children about racism, um, it was kind of demonstrated in the video that was shared just now too, that a lot of the time racial dialogue when it comes to white families is done reactively meaning that it's only ever talked about if there's some national news event or some incident at school um, and it's never talked about preactively so before the actual thing happens so if we take a more proactive approach um, which is what we teach with any other topic you don't want the first time that you're talking to your children about sex to be when they're sexually active or when they're thinking about sexually active you hope to build in that comfort in talking about these things way before. So as white parents, we really need to get on board with talking about the issue of race before there is that um, event that happens in the news. So it's always a good time to start buying books. They have a lot of really good books for even starting young. You could um, use a book like Anti-Racist Baby with a tiny child and they could start learning that language and skill and doing that for both the parents and the baby. I love the other aspect of the idea that children are not coming from a neutral place. They have a lot of information that's just constantly shared with them implicitly that makes it so that they need to be taught uh, appropriate messaging and realities. And if you'd like to see more on that, there is a really good video clip called The Doll Test. Um, just to see that these messages really are internalized. So if you Google doll test, you can see how some children are reacting to the values that they place on dark skin tone uh, baby dolls and lighter skin tone baby dolls. Because so many parents just think, well, if I don't talk to my kid about this, then they will grow up neutral. Um, they will love everybody. And that is a really nice idea, but it's just not true. So we have to have some conversations and disrupt some of the things that they're hearing at school and in society. That was great, Dr. Carlson. And, um, and I think it's a great segue to a lot of the questions that we have um, this evening. Um, we have some that I, I have some of my own, um, and then we have some from the audience as well that I'd like to ask both, both of you. Um, so one of the questions that we have, this is a question that we get a lot. Um, this is a question that I have received um, in the capacity of um, running a preschool. Um, parents want to know um, when it's too, like, how do you undo it? We've, they've, they've gotten to the point where there's a crisis at home. They've gotten to the point where someone, there was a name calling, there was some, there's something has happened. So now we have some inciting incident to the conversation and we've missed out on these opportunities to get it right from the beginning. Um, how do you roll back the clock and um, dig in to have those conversations at home at that point? Dr. Annika, you wanna lead? 
Well, what I'm first thinking about is if you're worried about rolling back the clock and the child is a child, then you're already way ahead. I have a lot of grad students that come into my master's program and they're 25 years old and they've never talked about racism. They've never talked about race. And so if you're worried about being a parent and thinking, oh, shoot, my child is five or seven or 10 and I haven't done this yet, you're really early and you can make a lot of impact by just starting then. Um, I think that one thing is showing multiple narratives. Sometimes like you might get caught and think, okay, I have to talk about this one aspect of this one group so they understand this. The whole point is establishing a library, a way of being, um, access to media that shows a lot of narratives. And you'll kind of notice if you think back or go through your library, look through your own library and whatever your ethnicity is, notice the percent of books that um, are written by, for me, white authors. And my students just did this when I solicited them to bring in books for Black History Month for our clinic. And um, there were very few of the white grad students who had books by black authors. So parents, please don't feel like you're behind. You're not behind, um, but you could really create some transformative change and seek out books. Like if you just Google and look for like little leaders, I would think that this book, this is Exceptional Men in Black History. And I've got another one that's Bold Women in Black History. Um, and these are kind of that mid-range age group where it's a, a little bit denser text, but that's some really rich, cool stuff. And then finally, as we look to past, look for modern day and present and future examples of young leaders, um, because we don't wanna just think black history or focus on history of the past, but also focused on stories of the present and the future. Love that. And I'll piggyback on that too. I think, you know, there's a couple of different opportunities here. One, you know, be honest, always lead with honesty. And what I mean by that is you can say, you know, mom or dad got this wrong. You know, I, I should have had this conversation with you earlier. You know, you can start with that. Um, you can also use it as an opportunity to connect it to another moment or instance. So we, we have this tendency to treat race as this completely separate outside entity when we can often connect stories around race, things that are happening with other things that are showing up in our life. You know, you've probably experienced hurt. You've probably experienced rejection in some way. Connect that to discrimination, you know, connect that to name calling. So make it real for your child, no matter what race they are, and it will resonate with them, even though at the core of it, you're trying to have a conversation around race. That is very helpful. And, you know, um, to that, I, you know, I'm thinking about the news clip that you showed earlier. And now I'm thinking about all of 2020. And I'm thinking about all the news and all of the, you know, the racial reckoning that happened across our country and across our planet, really. And I'm thinking about how children have observed those things as outside observers. And they may or may not have been able to ask their parents um, what that was or ask their teachers what that was or what was happening. Um, but it did happen, right? And some children participated. There were children at protests. So as when we think about age appropriateness and the social and emotional development of children, like how are we really crafting the explanation for not only what's going on in our world, but, um, but what's happening to people in it? Um, in an age-appropriate way. We deal with, we have families who have children who are babies all the way up until um, 18. So where, where, where do we go with that? Piggybacking on what I was talking about a minute, a minute ago, like you're looking for differences and similarities between what's happening in their world and what is showing up in the outside environment, right? 
Um, with elementary age school, uh, you can go a little bit deeper um, to, to Ms. Gansey's point. You know, they're, they're a little bit more aware of what's happening in the media. Uh, we see that with the technology and devices that they use. Sometimes you're surprised and shocked at what they may come to you with. So you can then connect it more to exactly what's happening. Again, tapping into how does this make you feel? Um, using sort of emotions as, you know, as we saw in the video there, right? You know, what are what are your fears? What, what are you anxious about? Um, with preteens, teens, you can go even further, you know, you can, ask them, you know, have you thought about how you can make a difference in this way? You know, what are, what are you thinking in your mind could be a way that you could evoke some change in this area? So you treat it again, what's appropriate for their age group, but every age group, there is an opportunity, there's an end by having real conversations. What I want to add is for those with young children, sometimes there are some good materials that you try to convey a message using animals or fake images that aren't people. And just kind of recognizing that if you're really trying to instill those values and messages, it might not be enough to have animal representations because there isn't that abstract thinking and reasoning where a child can look and go, oh, they're excluding this giraffe and I'm supposed to understand that this giraffe is really representing an Asian American person. And so um, getting to a point where you're talking about real things like melanin and skin affecting tone rather than kind of saying these things that children don't understand, like it would be similar to using the stork story instead of explaining to a child that babies don't come from birds, you know. Um, so we don't need to sugarcoat and make it so that we're more comfortable in explaining animal relationships, but really putting it on, um, like, how do you feel? I really like what you said, Dr. Manuel, about how does it make you feel when people are treated that way? And what would you do different if you were there at school? How would you stop a person from being mean to that other person? What have you done? And talking to them, not in a sense of guilt or shame or anything like that, but how do you encourage a behavior that stops that? So if somebody were ever to pick on that girl again for her hair or for her skin, what might you say? You could role play scenarios with your kids about racial bullying if that's coming up. I see that was in the chat about school environments and maybe things that have to do with bullying. And favoritism on teachers, for me, it's always the flip side of a responsibility of the educators. Um, if you're reading anti-racism baby with your child, you could be doing the be anti-racist book for yourself as an adult. So I know not every parent, um, if this is an educator talking, is going to do that, but it's both. It's the educating children and then doing our own work as adults. And for children of color, um, one of the, one of the uh, parents in the audience had this question on about, about how to help children of color uh, learn to self-defend. Or, or counter racist activity at their school, bullying by other students and issues of favoritism, but how do they do that in a school environment? Like how, what, what, are their, what are their next steps if they are encountering things like that in their school environment? That's a really unfair situation for a child to be in. And so if you're a white parent watching this, I want to say it's important because that is a reality for parents of color that are dealing with this in schools that it would be great if when you apply for your kid in a school system that you use that privilege and power to ask how are students being trained? What are their knowledge on racial bullying? Um, what would be, what are the protocols that are taken? Are the teachers trained in anti-racism? Any questions or about cultural competency, anything like that because 
sitting here and me describing how a child, you know, a black indigenous child of color should counter racism and favoritism from their teachers. I don't feel comfortable speaking on that, but on the flip side, that means that there's work that needs to be done. And if you're a parent and you're catching that, like you see your child is being favored in some way, um, bringing that to the attention of the educator because it's probably subconscious. I'm not saying that that teacher is inherently a bad person because that's not how bias works, but bias is very insidious and it can just build up. Maybe it's your child is coming home with um, extra help from their homework or more um, lenience when they don't aren't able to do something or more kindness. And using privilege to stop that is kind of the side that I feel more comfortable speaking on. So I want to pass it to you if you have any other side beyond that. Yeah, I, I wanted you to go first because I feel like my answer is a little bit more multi-layered. Um, so a lot of the work that I do in youth development, we do a lot with positive affirmations. You may be thinking, well, what does that have to do with being bullied? But I think what can happen in those instances is that where it activates feelings around self-esteem. Sometimes if someone's attacking us based on our skin color or the way that we look or something. So by beginning that work in the home, of affirming your identity, affirming who you are, that helps a child become a little bit more emotionally stable in those instances where they might be attacked based on how they look, right? And it also is gonna help them in their response to counteract those narratives when they come up, right? Where, where you might, without those things, be provoked to want to fight or defend yourself, you can stand your ground in who you are and affirmed in who you are. And I also, we also often encourage um, the youth that we work with that to invite an adult in those situations. Anytime there's some bullying of any nature because you just never know how those situations might go down to try to find a teacher, some adult, a principal, somebody that can intervene in those situations. But I always say, try to start at home in terms of your child affirming their own identity so that they can be emotionally prepared and equipped in those instances to be like, okay, you may feel that way and maybe even be able to identify that something about me is threatening you. This has nothing to do with me right now. This is about you feeling threatened. Thank you so much. And, and you brought up home and home is definitely our safe places, right? That's where we all feel the most comfortable usually. Um, what happens when we are talking about our extended family and our in our wider circles and these things are coming up at you know family everyone is not always on the same page and grandparents or aunts and uncles or cousins may not be on the same page as far as like how to safely navigate conversations like this and experiences that bring up really tough um tough ideas and ideals so what what do we do about our extended families um, and what they have to say about topics like this? I think that people are getting more comfortable with rejecting blatant racism. But one thing that's tricky, at least when I'm thinking about my extended family, is um, there's kind of a myth that there are certain political groups that are better at challenging racism and some that are worse at it. So if you kind of have a left-leaning family or people that identify with that um, ideology that they're maybe like supporting Black Lives Matter. And then they think, what do we do about people who are racist? Like, I'm not part of that. And those people have problems. I don't have problems. They have problems. 
it's inviting them back in and saying, actually, it's our work and we all need to do that work. So it's not something that um, somebody can be excluded from. And I think that, that that would be my first thing is that if you've got family members who all sit around the table and go, look at these horrible people, like they really need to work on doing, not being racist, um, bringing it back and saying, but what are we doing? What can we do? And then if it's something that is something you can kind of challenge over time, I talk to people about picking their moments of when they can, bringing it up as an ongoing conversation. Um, I understand sometimes we miss moments and then we think, well, we can't revisit it, but you can. You can bring it up again at a later time and say, you know, that really is stuck with my heart that we were talking about this thing. And I really, I have to be honest, I wasn't brave enough to say anything or I have to be honest. It was Susie's birthday. And right before she blew out the candles, you said this, and I didn't want to disrupt right then, but I'd really love to talk about it now. So if you miss an opportunity, don't feel like it's over. Sometimes you can revisit something a lot further along and use yourself as a learning opportunity. It might be I didn't even realize that that was something I didn't know how to talk about it, but now I've had time to think about it. And I really think that what bothered me was this thing. So if you need more time, you can take the time you need and then bring it back up. So don't feel like you're missing things if it doesn't happen right perfectly in that moment. I 1000% agree with Dr. Annika. And I would say too, you know, I often talk about how we as parents and guardians, you know, we are our children's first role model. And so seeing how you manage and navigate those types of relationships and conversations is also gonna help them. Even going back to the bullying, the, the comment before, you know, how do you show up for yourself? How do you protect your mental health? Sometimes that might mean stepping back from certain family members. I've actually had several friends over the course of the past year that's had to do that. They've tried to intervene and have those conversations and it just sort of fell on deaf ears. So also knowing when you might have to release certain relationships. Thank you. And speaking of um, parents being uh, children's first role model, um, diversity and, and inclusion. Diversity and inclusion, those, that phrase is like something that you hear every day now. Like if you see on social media, if you go to the library, if you go anywhere, TV, it's, it's constantly diversity and inclusion focused. Um, how important is it if we're engaging in inclusive environments, like if, if a child goes to a school community that, that has um, a, a wide diversity, but there's never anyone intimately introduced to a family's home or any of their private lives, you know, they don't, you know, when they're going out for their parties or their social environments and there's no diversity or inclusion in those types of, types of environments, is it? you know, does it, how does it weigh out for, for kids? Like what message are they really receiving in those instances? Um, you know, this is one where I say again, it does sort of fall in, on the responsibility of the parent um, to foster those, those types of dynamics. Um, I think that whether it be you're uh, involved more at school, you know, um, anytime there's any type of uh, community parent you know, come to the to the school, you want to really lean into those instances to meet the other parents, right? How are you going to sort of bring the children together if you don't have a relationship with the other adults? So I think you do as a parent, if you are in one of the situations, just describe that you have to create those moments, right? And, and make that normalize, as we like to say, normalize the diversity and the inclusiveness 
beyond just the scope of them going to school every day? What do what do sports look like? Extracurricular activities? What what opportunities are you creating on the weekends? We we have to foster this type of culture that we want to live in. The one word that stood out to me right when you shared that is authentic relationships. And I just kind of needed a moment to think about that because there's a difference between true, authentic, ongoing, long-term relationships that have depth versus tokenizing, meaning pulling somebody in with the explicit reason, like I want to show my kid that I can have a friend of color. Um, so there's a difference. And just really reflect on yourself and the relationship you have with that person and compare it. Is this like your same um, ethnicity relationships that you have? Or is there something different about this? Is there a different motive between this friendship? Because that's really unfair. So working on yourself, building real authentic relationships with people who don't look like you, who are from different groups than you, that to me is the ultimate goal. It's not just to have some token friendships throughout to um, demonstrate something to a child. So that to me is an ongoing deep process for people to really do the first one rather than having it be falling into the category of the second. In that same vein that if you are struggling with that, it's different when you were in school and you know you're on college campuses, the your world just sort of you know created opportunities more to sort of blend with different races. But now that you might be, you know, just working from home in a pandemic, right? Uh, what 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 opportunities are being afforded to you right now? Um, you really do have to lean into those. And I think that if this is uncomfortable for you, then you probably need to do some personal work to see what that's about. Like, why is there an instance, is there a moment where there was a breakdown in communication between you and a, and a person of a different race? And maybe there's some false beliefs that you're holding on to about that race, you know, as sort of a generalized belief. Um, and so I, I, I often encourage people that if you don't have, if you are white and you don't have any black friends, we'll just use that example. Um, ask yourself, what is that about? What's causing that sort of hesitation? And it could be a moment in, in your past that now your child is sort of living vicariously through you and not fostering those friendships. That is very helpful. Um, one of the things I like to do, because we, we, we could talk forever about this, and I think it's important that we have these conversations. Um, we're going to be sharing some resources with everyone at home. But I, I just want us to dial back. I want us to uh, all just remember back, um, Dr. Dr. Emmanuel and Dr. Carlson, if you could think, about, think back to your childhood, and we're all adults now, think about something that you had to unlearn. Um, and this is just a little bit of inspiration for everyone, something that you had to unlearn and overcome in terms of racism and how to, um, how to understand others. And, um, and I think that that could offer everyone like, you know, like there's a journey here. This is not something that we're going to just get through, like, you know, with the blink of an eye, this is work in progress. And if we could just speak to that, like what's something that you had to unlearn from your time as a child? I have very vivid memories of learning about the colonization of America um, in my elementary school. I remember um, they set up rows of chairs as if that the people in the class were coming over on a ship. And it was um, taught to us like it was this really brave, brave exploration and that we were coming to this new land. And it was all from the perspective of the European colonizers as this super brave thing. And I remember like feeling a sense of pride, like reenacting this thing. Um, 
And of course, it's I know a lot of parents struggle with how to talk about this event, like specifically the colonization of America, because they think, wow, my child is not going to feel pride in being an American or they're going to feel shame about being a white person or whatever it may be. But I think you can teach an honest history about the past um, without creating this idea of colonialism being this glamorized thing. Like we did not have to sit on a pretend boat and pretend to come to America as colonizers to learn about history. And I really, I really wonder, I wish I could talk to those teachers about why we did things like that and why it was so one-sided about the glamorizing of this particular perspective. Yeah, I was, I was sitting here thinking that what kept coming up for me was more so instances where I experienced racism um, and perhaps that is um, common um, as a black man in America, but I, I couldn't think of an instance where I have perhaps been racist, you know, or, act, or acted in a racist way. I, I'll share that when, when I was growing up in the American South, I mean, that we grew up and I grew up in the countryside of Pelzer, South Carolina. Um, and our family, my, my parents were sharecroppers as, as little children. And they had lots of stories and they had lots of distrust for people who didn't look like them. Um, lots of distrust and they would share that. They would say, I remember being a little girl and one of my aunts would say to me and she actually um, went to schools when they integrated for the first time in South Carolina. So she was there just like um, Ruby Bridges, like right there being escorted into the schools in South Carolina. And she, she once when I was a little girl told me, um, white people will never love you. They can't, that they physically can't do that. And and I was, you know, a young kid growing up and I was in elementary school in the time when that happened. And, you know, as an adult woman, I mean, I know that that is not true, but as an adult woman, I had to unlearn some of those things and understand that she was speaking from a very hurt place um, and that she believed those things to true because of historical, to be true because of historical evidence and her experience and angst in those moments, which is, which is, it's interesting that, you know, there's a lot to unwind. There's a lot to unravel as we have discourse like this. Um, and as we're working towards collectively, really understanding each other and understanding that we all have these, we have this collective history that is like woven in these American stories, these, this fabric and this, and this planetary stories. This is across our planet and that we, um, that we do have to dig deep into our own personal experiences to understand others and where they come from and what their desires are. And that we are essentially, like um, Maya Angelou would say, we're all uh, more alike than unalike. So, um, and that is you know, the truth of it when it comes down to it. And we're just trying to find ways to show kids that, to show kids that and to, and to be able to support families in those conversations. both of you have been wonderful. You have given us so much information to chew on. This has been very great. Um, I don't want to um, end this conversation without doing two things. We are um, very passionate about making sure that we have an extensive explorers library of family resources so that families, we, we want to support uh, families in raising 
children the best way they can. It does take a village that is not cliche, 100%, it does. Um, and to that end, we definitely would like to share some family resources on this topic um, and to our parent community. So if you have resources to share, please let us know. This is such important work. We are very passionate about it. We know that it's necessary. Uh, Dr. Carlson, Dr. Emmanuel, um, before we um, finish the conversation, I'd love for both of you to share some things that you're excited about with your work, some things that you have coming up, if there are additional talks, if there are ways to, you know, families have specific questions that you can answer for them. If you could just get, uh, give us a little information about what you have going on. I am doing some publishing about racial dialogue among college students, white college students, mm -hmm. and um, surrounding different topics that are a little bit unrelated to parenting. Um, and my work focuses on the training of therapists so that they can go out and do work that is culturally competent and that they understand the topics that we're talking about tonight. So I really focus working a lot with those master students, but many of them are parents. And um, Miss Katie was actually the person who's a student of mine and invited me tonight to come participate in this. So that's exciting to me. I also get involved with some policing agencies to talk to them about how to handle um, things like psychosis when they're coming up on people who might be acting different than they're used to because that disproportionately affects black community members when an officer is responding to them and not understanding that they might be dealing with a mental health crisis. So that might sound a lot of adult focus, but I think um, those things are important. And I have a student who, whenever she comes to our diversity and inclusion meetings, she'll say something like, I'm not here because I want to be here. I'm here because I need to be here. And um, I always listen to that. And I hear that, that it's not like it's a pleasure to talk about racism and race, but everybody needs to do it, especially the white parents there that sometimes we think, well, I don't have a culture. I don't have a race. Um, I'm neutral. And that's uh, that's not the case. And I saw someone ask about social media info. I'll put mine in the chat there. Um, I have an Instagram. <laughs> so um, thank you all. And I really appreciate being here. Loved learning from you, Dr. Emanuel. Same, thank you so much. Um, in a similar vein, so I'm currently working on a research project on imposter syndrome, um, looking specifically at how black people experience imposter syndrome. I did a social media post today uh, directly related to this topic. So I'm always trying to continue to push content to just broaden our thinking, to help us think critically um, about the conversations and the discussions that we're having. So. This has been great. And I just thank you guys so much. Thank you guys. Thank you both. This was so awesome. This is so awesome and so helpful. I know that everyone's going to go away with something valuable. And then after it's over, these are available on our website. We are going to make sure that these conversations are available to you because we care about the kids on this planet so much. And these conversations are important so much. <laughs> thank you guys for this conversation. My hat's off to you. I value your work. Your input is golden. You are valued, loved, and appreciated. Thank you so much. Um, I, I had a challenge uh, for folks, for anyone that might be oh. up for it. So my okay. challenge based on things that me and Dr. Annika both shared tonight would be, you know, what real world example from the past year might you pair with some of the do's we talked about to begin a conversation with your child. And again, those do's were, were practice what you're going to say, run it by a friend, be aware of your own biases, and then ask your child how they feel. How could you pair one of those 
with some things that have happened over the past year to begin that conversation. Remember, you are your child's most influential role model. As they seek to form their individual identities, you influence their attitudes, behavior, values, the way they coexist with others, as well as how they choose to love and honor who they uniquely are. Yes, we know, it's quite the tall order. But guess what? You don't have to do it alone. We're all figuring it out, one day at a time, together. Until next time, live, laugh, go explore. Thank you.